Hello, and welcome to Full Armor Radio. I am your host, John O'Rourke. It is good to be back with you. Um, if you don't know, I am an evangelistic worker with Reformed Evangelistic Fellowship, and um, today what I want to talk about relates directly to that sort of work. So what I do is I go around and I do evangelism in the public square, you know, talk to people, engage with unbelievers with the gospel, and in doing apologetics. And that's what I want to talk about today, some apologetical issues. Um, apologetics simply is a defense of the faith, a reasoned defense of the faith, a verbal, you know, stated defense of the faith. Um, and I am dogmatically presuppositional in my approach to apologetics. I am a presuppositional apologist, presuppositionalism. Uh, presuppositionalism um, essentially is an apologetic methodology that is rooted in scripture in the sense that it takes the what God says about the unbeliever very seriously and that the unbeliever um, is unable to reason his way to God. He is unable um, on his own to believe the gospel on his own. Um, and it takes seriously that God has consigned all of man's philosophies to the category of foolishness. God calls all unbelieving worldviews foolish. Okay, remember, you probably know Proverbs 1 7, the fear of Yahweh, the fear of the Lord, is the beginning of wisdom, knowledge. Um, the, the point is this is that if you're going to gain knowledge, if you're going to know the truth, your starting place has to be God. It has to be the Word of God. It has to be fearing God. And probably most emphatic about this is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18-25. So let me, let me hop over there, um, and we will we'll look at that for just a minute as an introduction. And then... We're going to talk about the main biblical text I want to talk about, which I think illustrates the issues with apologetics so plainly. So looking at, over here, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, this is the NESB, it says this in verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. And I'll, I'll stop there for a minute. Think about that. This is God talking. He's saying, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And what that's saying is not, not people who have legitimate, you know, God-given wisdom, but people who have a self-conception that they are wise. People who think that they are wise, but in fact are foolish. See, God is destroying the so-called wisdom of the wise. People who... Like Romans says, Romans 1, claiming to be wise, they became fools. It's another great text, but we won't go there right now. He says this, verse 20, so crucial. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So now you see very clearly what he's getting at. Basically, Paul is saying, listen, bring it on, world. Whatever you have in terms of your worldviews, whatever you have in terms of your human philosophy, he says, bring it on. Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Where's the guy who really has his arguments in defense of his, his um, anti-Christian worldview? He's saying, look, God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. 
So don't worry about those unbelieving worldviews. They're all consigned to foolishness. God destroys the so-called wisdom of the wise. Look at verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. This is such a crucial thing. God has, in his wisdom, made it so that the world cannot come to know God by their own wisdom. In other words, human philosophies, philosophies that are not based upon God's, wor God's word, worldviews that are anti-Christian, you will never come to know God by human reason alone. Human reason, therefore, is not the ultimate authority, is it? But the world through its you know, so-called wisdom does not come to know God by it. And God reveals his message through what the world considers a foolish method, preaching. Through the foolishness of the message preached. See, the world says that's ridiculous, that's foolishness, that's silly. But it's actually the other way around. God has said, listen, all, of unbelie all the unbelieving worldviews, those are the worldviews that are foolish. God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. Verse 22, for indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, that is, human-derived wisdom, not God's wisdom. He says, but we preach Christ crucified, a Jews to, uh, to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, right? Doesn't make sense to them. It's foolish to them. They don't buy it. Verse 24, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, right? See, the big difference here in this text, verse 18, way back when we started, the word of the cross is foolishness to who? To those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved is the power of God, right? Those who are the elect of God, those are the ones who, who, re who receive the gospel, who receive the wisdom of God. Verse 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Think about that. Does God have foolishness? Of course not. Does he have weakness? Of course not. So you have this hyperbolic, this exaggerating language. Even if God was foolish, it would be wiser than man's worldviews. Even if God was weak, he'd be stronger than them. So the foolishness of God, he's speaking hyperbolically here. He's saying man's worldviews are so foolish. They're not pretty good. They're not relatively reasonable. They are consigned to foolishness. This is God's position here. Now, my main focus on this podcast is not the foolishness of unbelief, which is something else that I've talked about. I did a Sunday school lesson that is on my, if you look up, Full Armor Radio on podcast, you'll see a, a thing called What Should Our Attitude Towards Apologetics Be? That is about the foolishness of unbelief and how we are to um, engage with unbelievers with gentleness and with respect. But today, I want to talk about apologetical issues in Acts 14. Okay, so here we are in Acts 14, and my wife read this text recently, and she pointed it out and says, doesn't this have a lot of apologetic issues in it? I thought, yeah, absolutely it does. She was right on. So I want to read through this. I want to point out some stuff. This is important for us as Christians to understand what we're dealing with and how we're supposed to deal with it and view apologetics. Contrary to an evidential approach to apologetics, 
or a classical approach to apologetics. We take a presuppositional approach, and I want to critique those as we go along. So here's Acts 14. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. But the Jews, who disbelieved, stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Okay, so right off the bat, we got some people believing the gospel, some people not, and some people fighting against it. Verse 3, Therefore they spent a long time there, speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who is testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. Okay? So here's Paul. He's preaching the gospel. He's doing miracles, signs and wonders. Now, what was the purpose of signs and wonders? Signs and wonders are meant to authenticate the speaker as coming from God. In other words, the one who's doing miracles is saying, look, I'm speaking the word of God. Let me show you. I'm going to do miracles by the power of God. This has always been the case. When Moses went to Pharaoh in Exodus, God gave him the ability to do miracles in order to demonstrate that he was really coming from Yahweh. Um, in the New Testament, Jesus likewise did miracles. Remember what he says in Mark 2, when the friends lower the paralytic down uh, through the roof panels, and Jesus heals him. But he says to him, your sins are forgiven. And people are grumbling, saying, can this guy, who's this guy? Only God can forgive sins. And he says, yes, so that you may know that I have the power to forgive sins, he basically is saying, which is easier to say, take up your mat and walk or your sins are forgiven? And the answer is, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because you can't see whether sins are forgiven, but you can see whether somebody is healed from being paralyzed or not. So he says, so that you, have, so that you know I have authority to forgive sins, I say, take up, rise up and walk, you know, something to that effect. So he's saying, my healing this guy miraculously will demonstrate to you that I really do have the authority to forgive sins, like I say. Okay? The Apostle Paul here, as well, it says, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. They're testifying to the word of grace and doing miracles to, um, to back that up, to show that they're actually coming from, from the Lord. Okay? So keep that in mind. They're doing miracles. But how do the people respond? Do they say, wow, these guys are doing miracles. There is no way we can doubt what they are saying. There is no way we could doubt what they're saying. Verse 4, But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews, and some with the apostles. Well, that's a bit surprising, isn't it? Here are people doing miracles, and they're divided over the issue? Hmm. I wonder why. I wonder why. Verse 5, And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lycaonia, Lystra, and Derbe, and the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So at Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, <clears throat> lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be well, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lycaonian language, Listen, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. 
and they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. This is where I want to take a, a minute and talk about what's going on here and what this has to do with apologetics. In an evidential approach or a classical approach to apologetics, contrasted with the presuppositional approach, which I am advocating for, one of the main arguments of an evidential approach is that the working of miracles is a, is a sure um, persuader of unbelievers. Even unbelievers themselves will say things like this. Well, if God were to do a miracle right in front of me right now, then I'd believe he exists. But the testimony of scripture says something different than what the unbeliever thinks about himself and what the classical or evidential apologist thinks about the unbeliever. The Bible teaches that even when people see miracles, they're not necessarily persuaded by them, right? I gave an example earlier of Moses with Pharaoh. When Pharaoh saw the first miracle of Moses, what did he do? Did he fall down on his face and say, Surely you are a prophet of the only true and living God, Yahweh of Israel. No, he hardened his heart over and over and over and over again, right? When Jesus did miracles, he noticed that they never denied whether or not Jesus actually did the miracles. They simply interpreted them, interpreted them a different way. For example, in Matthew 12, they said, well, Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, or by Satan's power. Now, Jesus refutes them, but the point is clear. They didn't say, well, Jesus is doing miracles. He must be who he says he is, the Son of God. He, he must be true. They didn't say that, did they? Here, in Acts 14, likewise, the people are, are divided on the issue. They're divided on the issue of what's going on with, with Paul and Barnabas doing miracles, etc. Now, what do we have here? Some people say, okay, Jesus rose from the dead. If we can demonstrate that Jesus rose from the dead then people are, will be forced to believe. okay? Because if, if we can prove, hey, Jesus rose from the dead, then people will definitely believe the gospel, or, or they'll definitely believe that at least that God exists and that Jesus is God. There's a few problems with that. Let me, let me jump out of this text um, real quick and go over to Luke 16. This just baffles me. Luke 16 is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Okay, you know the story. Um, I'll read it. Verse 19 of Luke 16. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died, listen to this, and the poor man died and was carried away by angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he, the rich man lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. So let me just catch you up here. Basically, there's a rich man and there's Lazarus. They both die. Lazarus goes to heaven, essentially, and um, uh, the rich man goes to Hades, uh, where he's in conscious torment. Verse 25, Abraham's response to the rich man. Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he's being comforted here, and you are in agony. 
And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over, come from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father Abraham, that you send him to my father's house. Now listen. So Abraham is saying, Once you die, you can't, if you go to hell, you can't switch over to heaven and vice versa. So he says, Okay, well, if I can't come over, please send someone to my father's house. For I have five brothers, in order that they may that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. So he's saying, send Lazarus back from the dead, so that he can warn the rich man's brothers. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. So Moses' response is to the rich man, hey, your brothers, they have the Bible, they have the Old Testament, Moses and the prophets, if they listen to that, then they won't go to hell, right? If they'll actually believe the gospel. But then the, what's the rich man insist upon? No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Unbelievers think that if I saw somebody rise from the dead, I'd believe in God. Evidentialist apologetic apologists say, if we could prove that Jesus rose from the dead, then people will repent. But what's Abraham's response in the parable? Verse 31, the last verse of the parable. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. That's so crucial to understanding apologetics and what the issue is. If they don't listen to the Bible, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Miracles. Miracles. What, 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 how can you argue with the miracle? How can you argue with a miracle, right? Doesn't that prove that the one true and living God exists? Well, objectively, yes, of course. God's, God is true no matter what people believe. Whether they're miracles or not, God is true. He's the true God and he exists. But why aren't miracles persuasive all the time? Why do we have in Acts 14 this mix, this, this division. Now, I want to point out here, we get back in Acts 14 something. So, so Paul had just healed this man who was lame from birth. And what did the people respond with? Did they say, I don't believe he did a miracle? No, they didn't say that. When, when miracles happen, when God actually does a miracle through somebody, people don't deny them. Right? They, they can't deny them. They're so obvious. Something amazing has happened here. Now, like I said earlier, the Pharisees, when they saw Jesus cast out demons, they said, well, he's doing that by the power of Satan, not by the power of God. That's how they interpreted Jesus's doing miraculous works. When these people here in Lycaonia, what do they say? Paul and Barnabas, are they, are they prophets from the one true and living God, Yahweh? No. That's not what they said. They said, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. Barnabas, that's Zeus. Paul, that's Hermes. Think about that. They interpreted the miracles that they saw through their own worldview. What's these people's worldview? It's polytheistic. They believe in many gods. They believe in these Greek and Roman gods. So, what do they, what do they think when miracles happen? It's not Yahweh, the true God. It's 
our gods are Greek gods, right? So when you, when someone when an unbeliever sees a miracle, what does that actually prove by itself apart from the Bible? It doesn't actually demonstrate to the unbeliever anything about the true God, because they're going to interpret the miracle through their worldview lens, right? Like Jesus said in the parable, Abraham in the parable says, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe if someone rises from the dead. What's the point here? The ultimate and foundational truth and authority is the word of God, not anything else. Even miracles. Miracles leave people without excuse to the highest degree. Right? People are already without excuse because God has revealed himself through, through creation. People are without excuse nowadays so much because they have Bibles and they know, um, know they like, can read the Bible and they have it at their fingertips. People in this day and age um, with Paul and all that, they saw miracles. They're certainly without excuse. But the point is, is that signs and wonders are not an ultimate persuader. Are they? Clearly not. Clearly not. I mean, that couldn't get much plainer when Jesus says that even when somebody rises from the dead, people won't believe. And right here, they see miracles, and they're saying, yeah, miracles happen by Zeus and Hermes, not by the true and living God. So my point is this, for, for evidentialist, uh, uh, evidential apologetics, even if we could go around working miracles, which I know we cannot, by the way, but even if we went around working miracles, that is not an ultimate persuader. Okay? People will interpret even miracles through their own worldview lens. Now, we don't have as many polytheists running around on our streets today as they did, but we do have maybe more atheists and naturalists. How would an atheist standing here interpret Paul's signs and wonders? He would say, either, it's fake, or if you said, you know, I can't deny that that's real, he would say, well, there's some sort of natural explanation there. Some sort of scientific explanation that we haven't found out yet. And he'd be satisfied with that answer. Right? If somebody saw Jesus rise from the dead, they'll say, okay. And, and say, they, say they said, yeah, I can't deny that that happened. They say, okay, well, there are some unexplained phenomenon where occasionally, very rarely, a dead person will rise from the dead again. Does that prove... Does that is that persuasive and does that prove as an argument by itself that <clears throat> that um, that the Christian worldview is true? Apparently not. Ultimately, it comes down to what our presuppositions are. Do we presuppose the Bible is God's word, or do we not presuppose that? These you know Greeks, these Gentiles, they presupposed that many gods existed. They were polytheists. So they interpret evidences through their polytheistic worldview. A Christian with Christian presuppositions, you know, would see, see miracles done by Paul, they'd say, yeah, that's, that's done by God, by Yahweh, the true God. Right? It's done by the Trinity, by the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. See, the thing is, even, so all, so all evidences, all data is interpreted through our worldviews including miracles. That's my main point right now. I'm trying to 
summarize here. When we say all data, all evidences are interpreted through our worldview, we mean all evidences. You know, we give the example oh, when 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 an atheist or when an evolutionist atheist and a Christian look at the Grand Canyon, they look at it with two different interpretations. The atheist may say, "Look what a little stream of water did." Oh, you know, over millions of years, it carved this massive canyon by eroding away the, water, the the dirt. Okay. Well, the Christian, looking at the same Grand Canyon, would say, "Well, look what a um, a large amount of water did in a short amount of time. When in the, in the flood of Noah's day, where a large wa large amounts of water flowed into this valley and carved through it and made this Grand Canyon. So you see, you have the same Grand Canyon." looking at the same piece of evidence, but yet the Darwinist and the Christian look at it with two different interpretations. And people might understand that, say, okay, yeah, that makes, that makes sense. But then they think, well, for miracles, there's just no other way to interpret it. Miracles are obvious. Well, the fact of the matter is, God's existence is obvious in every fact. Everything points to God. Not just the Grand Canyon and not just miracles, but everything points to God. But also, the point is this, is that even miracles, even that evidence, is interpreted through somebody's worldview lens. They interpret it based upon what they presuppose. Do they believe in many gods? Well, then they're going to think, well, it's probably one or, or a few of our gods doing these miracles, like these guys did in Acts 14. If they're an atheist, they'll say, it's not supernatural. There's some natural explanation for this. We'll figure it out. No worries. You see... They can always, they'll always uh, deploy a rescuing device, meaning even if it doesn't seem to make sense in their worldview, like the naturalists, they'll say, well, there, there's, there's something out there. There's some mechanism that makes this strange thing happen, and it's natural. It's not God, it's not supernatural. But if you're a polytheist like these guys, they say, well, yeah, it's, it's Zeus and Hermes. <laughs> See the point? Miracles by themselves, which are not, like miracles that are left uninterpreted don't actually communicate very much to us, do they? Miracles are interpreted to us through the Bible. We know what the, what the significance of miracles is simply because of the Bible. If all we had about Jesus was, here's a guy, he taught some stuff, and uh, he rose from the dead after he was crucified. It's okay, that's a pretty weird story. It's uninterpreted. Here's a dead guy, he rose again. Okay. What if you had the same story? Here's a guy who lived... He did some stuff, he died, and then he rose again. But we're talking about Lazarus, the one that Jesus rose from the dead. Or in the Old Testament, um, we're talking about, I think, what is the, the widow's the widow's son. This guy, this guy lived a little while, died, and then Elijah the prophet raised him from the dead. Okay. All, all those things without being interpreted by the Bible really don't have meaning. What do they mean? What's it mean that Jesus died and rose from the dead? Does it mean the same thing that when Lazarus dies and rose from the dead? Certainly not. There's a big difference. You have to know who Jesus is and what his death was accomplishing and what his resurrection is accomplishing. and All of that needs to be interpreted and put in the framework of the theology of the Bible. So my point is this. Just like Jesus said in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the if people don't believe the Bible, they aren't going to believe if somebody rises from the dead. The, the ultimate authority in the way that God has revealed himself most clearly is in the scripture. Okay? Yes, he's revealed himself in some ways through creation, but only in a few ways. 
he's revealed himself more, most fully and most clearly in the Bible. So let's go on here in Acts. We're here um, in verse 13. So they just called Paul and Barnabas Zeus and Hermes. And it says, verse 13, The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Okay, this is getting really bad really fast. They're going to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you, and preach the gospel to you, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. This is really important. Notice their response. Their response is, well, I'm very glad that you believe in the existence of a God or gods, that you are theistic in some way or another. I'm glad that you believe in the supernatural. Um, we just need to take one step further and just get you down to be a monotheist. And then we need to take that and show and go from monotheism to um, believing in, in Jesus. Now, why do I say that? Because ev many evidentialist apologetics do what they call a building block approach. Okay, I'm going to get you to be a polytheist, then a monotheist, and then I'm going to try to get you to be a Christian. See, Paul and Barnabas don't say that. They don't say, I commend you for, for your what you've got right so far. He says, we are men, just like you, the same nature as you. We preach the gospel so you can turn from these vain things. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1? The foolishness of the world. The foolishness of the world. He's saying, your worldview is foolish. Your polytheism is foolishness. It's vain. It's worthless. Turn from those vain things to a living God. Not a God that's, you know, not real and a statue and things like that. The God, the real God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. He goes on, In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And yet he did not leave himself without witness, and that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So the point is here, listen, God has always taken God takes care of human beings. Okay? And you have no excuse to not know him. He's the one who provides for all of your needs. Now Romans one talks about this in greater detail, but the point is is that every fact, every piece of evidence in the world um, points to God. Now again, people will misinterpret them through their faulty worldview lens, but objectively, it points to God. Because, I can't go into this in this podcast, but as I've stated before, in presuppositional apologetics, we are arguing that you can't, it, without starting with God, without starting with Christian worldview, you can't actually know anything. Unbelievers only know things because they're borrowing from the Christian worldview. The Christian worldview is self-consistent and accounts for knowledge itself, while the unbelieving worldview does not. Now, again, that's not going to make sense to you if you don't know the argument, but the point is, you know, the unbelieving world, the point is that every, every piece of data, every evidence actually um, points to God, and you actually have to presuppose the Christian worldview in order to make sense of anything, okay? But that's a topic for another another time. 
So the point is here is that every bit of evidence points to them. They have no excuse. Romans 1 says that everybody's without excuse. All right. 18. Even saying these things, with difficulty they restrain the crowds from offering a sacrifice to them. They're not really listening. Okay, They are probably, again, interpreting Paul's words here incorrectly or just totally blocking them out and just have already committed themselves to saying this, this is Zeus and Hermes. Verse 19, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. After they had preached the gospel of that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, into Iconium, into Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That probably had incredible impact when Paul says, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God, having just been stoned, and they thought he was dead. He was probably extremely beat up at this point. Very beat up. He'd look probably pretty bad. So he's saying, listen, I'm encouraging you, keep on fighting. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commanded them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And when they and from there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time with the disciples. So there's, there's, Acts, um, there's Acts 14. So what did we learn? Some apologetical issues. Main thing here I want to talk, wanted to talk about was about miracles. Okay, The evidentiary value of miracles is that ultimately they, they must be interpreted as well. They don't come along with their own interpretations you know, wrapped up in them. They don't say, this is from Yahweh, believe him, when, when the miracles are being done. People will say, listen, there's another explanation. It's not done by Yahweh, it's done by a different God. Oh, it's not actually supernatural. It's just a natural explanation. There's an actual explanation that we just don't know yet. For example, those are some ways people can misinterpret miracles, but nevertheless interpret them that way. So as Jesus said, if people will not believe Moses and the prophets, if people will not believe the Bible, then neither will they believe if someone rises from the dead. Okay. So what's the point? How does this affect our apologetics? We need to take seriously the power of worldviews <laughs> and that unbelieving worldviews ultimately are foolish they don't have something to commend in them. They're foolish. They're vain. And they misinterpret data. They misinterpret evidence. Okay? Paul, well, God has consigned all unbelieving worldviews to be, be called foolish. Okay? God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. Bring on the debater of this age. There's nothing that they can bring um, against the Christian worldview. The point is this. That when we engage in apologetics, we are to recognize that we are trying to show the unbeliever the foolishness of unbelief. And no amount of evidence out there is going to be sufficient enough 
to be persuasive. What we need to do is undercut and show that on his worldview, his worldview's presuppositions, he can't make sense out of any fact. He, he can't make sense out of anything, of any piece of evidence. Okay? So that's where the transcendental argument comes into play. And I've talked about this before. Um, I did a podcast called A Critique of a Critique of Presuppositional Apologetics. You want to check that out. But this is, for, this is more of an intermediate level apologetic discussion. My point is this, when you have, when you understand the transcendental argument for the existence of God, the Christian God, you need to understand that even miracles, even miracles, are not persuasive because they are also interpreted through unbelieving worldview lenses. Okay? So, do miracles attest to, um, do, when, when, a, when a prophet does a miracle in the Bible, does that authenticate his message yeah it shows it shows that he's from god the issue is people will misinterpret that they will reinterpret that right the fact fact of the matter is people are without excuse not just because miracles happen but they're without excuse because of everything right their whole experience makes them without excuse um because again if the unbeliever if the unbeliever were actually consistent and stayed within the bounds of his own worldview, he couldn't account for knowledge itself. He couldn't make sense of ethics. He couldn't make sense of laws of logic. He couldn't make sense of why science works. But yet he does use those things. He uses logic. He uses the scientific method. He makes moral judgments. And all those things only make sense in a Christian worldview. So as, as Van Til put it, in order to argue against God, you have to sit on God's lap like a little kid gets up on his father's lap and slaps him in the face. He's saying the only way that the unbeliever can attempt to slap God in the face is if he first gets up on his lap. So when the unbeliever says, God's evil, well, in his worldview, he can't make sense of good and evil, so he has to go over into the Christian worldview, stand on, on some grounds of ethics that the Christian worldview can account for, and then accuse God. So he's getting on God's lap and slapping him. He's saying, well, the Bible doesn't make sense to me, or it's, it's inconsistent, which is not true, by the way. But they make those claims. He can't account, the unbeliever cannot account for why inconsistency is out of bounds when we're doing reasoning. So he has to come into the Christian worldview, which can make sense of laws of logic, stand in there and say, God, you are contradicting yourself in the Bible. See, all the while having to presuppose, at least in part, the Christian worldview in order to argue against it. Right? So ultimately, everything that the unbeliever does, his worldview can't make sense of it. He can't make sense of any piece of evidence in his experience. Okay? He can't make sense of why science works, but the Bible can, so he has to come over here. Yes, he doesn't do it consciously, but he comes over to the Christian worldview and he um, borrows from it in order to try to argue against it. It's a self defeating position. Again, this, this podcast is not meant to go into the details of, of that argumentation, but I'm hoping you get my point here. If you're an evidentialist, I want you to think about these things a bit more about miracles. Jesus rising from the dead is not the ultimate argument. Okay? The ultimate argument is arguing for the truth of God's word. Because if you deny God's word, you're reduced to complete foolishness. That's, that's where the argument that presuppositionalist makes. 
You start with God's word or else you are a fool, you're irrational, and you can't make sense out of anything. It's not enough to say, well, look, this Jesus rose from the dead. And people will say, okay, big deal. You have to argue for scripture. You have to argue for God's revelation. Okay? That's the point, what Jesus says. If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe if someone rises from the dead. Okay? So anyway, I hope that was clear, and I feel like it was a little bit jumbled because there's a lot that needs to be understood in order to understand what I'm saying here. But if you have already studied a bit of a, a presuppositional apologetics, maybe this will be helpful to you. Um, anyway, <coughs> I hope that um, you can, you'll check out some of my other uh, other podcasts that deal with apologetics. Like I said, a critique of a critique of presuppositionalism deals with basic presuppositional apologetic arguments. Um, I just did a just put up a podcast. It's not on YouTube, but it's on. Um, every podcast streaming thing. It's just the audio. It's on every podcast streaming service. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc. And it's called What Should Our Attitude Toward Apologetics Be? Um, I currently am teaching an apologetics course. Now, once that is completed, I will be uploading those videos and the audio as well. And that will deal with this whole thing systematically instead of trying to do this in, you know, whatever, half hour or 40 minutes, um, which is really difficult to do. So anyway, I hope there's some pedagogical value to this. I hope this taught you something um, and uh, that will help you think through the apologetic issues in Scripture. And um, again, I appreciate you taking the time to listen to this. And I hope you have a good day. And God bless you.